Amen. Thank you, R.G., so much. He had been used by the Lord for many, many, many years. And now his time was wrapping up, and God had one more command for him. Go up to the top of the mountain. And so there he was, one step after another, 120 years old, his life full. He started in the palace. He then went into the shepherd's field, and he ended up being a leader of God's people. Moses was called to bring people out of Egypt, lead them in the wandering wilderness, and then to the promised land. And God had called Moses to go to the very top of the mountain and look. And so there Moses was on Mount Nebo, and he looks, and his eyes finally behold the promised land, the large blue sky, the massive fertile valley, the little creeks, the huge mountain ranges that expand as far as his eyes can see. That was the land God had promised his people. That was the land he was walking towards. And there Moses would take his last breath. But on that day, Before he went up to the mountain, he had a talk. He had a discussion, and he pulled aside a young man named Joshua, the son of Nun. And privately, Moses gave Joshua his final commands. And he says to young Joshua, Be strong and courageous, and know that the Lord is with you, and he will take you into the promised land, for God is faithful. And after acknowledging and encouraging Joshua, now Moses and Joshua are before hundreds of thousands of eyes staring back at them. And Moses commands the people to follow and to obey Joshua. And Moses stands and looks to him and then declares before the people, be strong and courageous for God is with you. Moses would die. Joshua would go into the promised land with blood, with sweat, and with tears. He would go and fight land by land, city by city, conquering what God had called him to. And during that time, not once, not twice, but three different occasions, God speaks to Joshua, be strong and courageous for I am with you. Now, Joshua, as his life went and he was faithful in his calling and he honored the Lord and he acted like a man, he was in a position where now his men were fearful of dying. And Joshua summoned up his army and guess what he commanded them to do? Be strong and courageous for the Lord is with you. We see this progression of a man, of a leader, going from someone who was fearful and not knowing what was going to happen to a man who ultimately would lead by example and lead through experience. Now, this is the calling of the Christian. If you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 13, you remember there were five military commands that Sergeant Paul is barking at the church, and the one bam smack in the middle is act like men, and then what's the very next word? Be strong. And remember last week, we said that the the idea of a man is maturity and what? Courage. What is Paul calling the men, the church to do? Be strong and what? Courageous. Courageous. 
That's the call for the man to be strong, to act like a man, and to be courageous and mature in all they do. Now, last week, we looked at the idea of maturity and strength or bravado and balance. A man should be strong, powerful, and aggressive, yet temper that with a moderate mindset or the ability to have self-control and discipline over his own emotions, over his own words. A man doesn't have to get the last word. He doesn't have to get the last laugh. He doesn't have to prove anything to anyone. He is strong, he is confident, and he is mature. Then we looked at the calling of the man. Do you remember that back in the Garden of Eden? We looked at seven different reasons why we came to the conclusion that Adam was in fact called to be the, the man or the head of the home. Do you remember what those seven things were? If you don't, that's okay. Who came first? Do you remember? Adam came first. Who did God command and give his law to? Adam. Eve wasn't even there. Who did God call and then command to name the animals, to tend the garden, and to labor and serve the Lord? Adam. Eve hadn't even been created yet. Last week, we discussed the idea of a, of a baby coming out of a mother's body and the idea that she has possession over that individual, that child, because that child came from her or out of her. And we discussed where did Eve come from? Out of Adam. She didn't come from the ground like Adam. She came out of Adam. Then we discussed the idea of parents having authority to be able to name their child. That is an idea of possession or authority. To give a child a birth name that they're going to be identified with the rest of their life. Now, God didn't name Eve. Who named Eve? Again, exercising his authority. When the man goes to start a marriage or engage in the idea of engagement, the man is called to leave father and mother and go cling to his wife. Again, it's the man initiating or founding the marriage unit. Again, the call to leadership. So the man is to be strong yet mature, and he is called to lead. Now, in the coming weeks, we're going to look at what leadership looks like. But for the most part, we just talked about humility. Lead in humility and you're going to be A-OK. So 1 Corinthians chapter 16, let's look at some other aspects of what a man is to be like. Paul says, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, and then verse 14 to counterbalance, let all that you do be done in love. So we go from a man is called to be a leader, and here's the second aspect of a biblical man. Biblical manhood, the man is called to be a lover. He's called to be a leader, strong, powerful, and yet he's also called to be a lover. Now, first things first, who do you think he is to love first and foremost? God. Now, look at Matthew 22. Now, this is for all of mankind, but especially for men. Matthew 22, 34 through 40. Matthew chapter 22. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul and with all your mind. And this is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So what is the command? To love God with what? Heart, soul, and mind. Pray tell, where do the heart, the soul, and the mind reside? Inside the body. So it's an internal attitude. This command is an internal attitude. Your mind, your body, your soul, your strength, everything internally that is you is called to love God. Now, how does internal things express themselves? In other words, how can you look at a person and say, they really love God? I can see the Holy Spirit just all over them. I can see this person just on fire for God. How does that happen? How, do, how does internal love for God actually express itself? In which way? How, do, how physically, actually in the means, how does it express itself? How would you say, I know they're a Christian, I don't even have to talk to them? Good works, right? Internally, I love God, and how is that expressed? Let your light so shine before men that they see your and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The idea is it starts inside with the attitude of loving God with everything you have, and then it wraps around through actions. Your attitudes materialize through actions when you love God with your heart, your soul, and your mind. This is the call for the man of God. You see, unbelievers, a husband can love their wife, and he can do a pretty good job in maintaining that relationship. However, he will never be able to love his wife like a believer because the believer has the Holy Spirit. The believer has the Bible. The believer has the illustration of Christ and his church. So there is a depth and a level of love that the man of God can serve with and lead with, but it starts with loving God. That is the, the foundation of it all. What does Proverbs 1 say? Proverbs 7, Proverbs 9. The fear of the Lord is what? The beginning. The beginning. It starts right there. You can fill in the blank with whatever else, but it begins with fearing God, which is loving him, honoring him, serving him. It's an internal thing that materializes or it expresses itself through good works or external living, or here's a word, obedience. Jesus says this, why do you say that you love me and you don't do what I say? If a husband says, I love my wife, but he beats her, he cheats on her, he runs out on her, he's disrespecting her, he can say, oh, I love you till he's blue in the face. His actions speak completely another story. And Jesus is telling the Christian, why do you say I'm your Lord and you don't serve me? Why do you say you love me and you aren't honoring me? Those two things cannot go hand in hand. You either serve him and because you love him or you don't love him, which results in you won't serve him. So Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Second John 1, 6, I'll just read it to you. John says this, the apostle of love, the uh, apostle of evangelism, he says in verse 6, and this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in 
it. So the idea is you love God and then it materializes itself in the walk or actually how you live and experience your life. In Psalm chapter 40, this is another beautiful one of loving the Lord and what real men are called to do. Psalm chapter 40 and verse 6. Now this is David, and we all know David loved God, but he wasn't necessarily the holiest of men. Psalm 40 verse 6. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. So he starts off and he's saying, okay, God is not pleased with rules and regulations. In other words, I'm not going to come at my relationship with God and say, okay, I'm going to honor the Ten Commandments, and I'm going to be at church at 9.55, and I'm going to give exactly 11%, and these are my rules, and these are how I operate with God. David has this epiphany in saying, God's not about that. He doesn't care about you and your rigmarole and, and you going through the motions. What does he care about most? Your heart. He wants your heart. He wants to take the tablet of stone and remove it and place it with a heart of flesh so that he can write his law on it. David has this aha moment in verse 7. He's saying God isn't asking for these things. This is what he's asking for. He has an aha moment, verse 7 and 8. Then I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. He says, God doesn't care about rules and regulations. He wants my heart. He wants me to have an intimate relationship with him. You remember Jesus, and this is the worst, one of the worst verses in all the Bible. When Jesus says, many will come to me in that day, and they will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many marvelous works in your name? And what is Jesus' response to them? Go to hell, I never knew you, was essentially his response. Depart from me, you workers of sin, I never, and the word knew is intimate relationship. Like Adam knew his wife Eve and they had a child. I never intimately, relationally knew you. You never loved me. You may have followed rules. You may have gone through regulations. You may have gone through confirmations. You may have gone through a whole myriad of lists of church activities. Doesn't mean a thing. You love me or you don't. And it's shown by what you do. You are, men are to be called as spiritual lovers of God. Now, notice, remember we said, it then manifests itself through good works. Look at verse 9 and 10. Look at David. He goes and he says, your law is within my heart. Verse 9, I have proclaimed glad tidings. What's another name for glad tidings? Good news. Good news. What's another name for good news? I have been proclaiming the gospel. That's what he's saying. I'm proclaiming the gospel, the good news about God. And he goes on in saying, I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and of your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. What does David do? It's not about rules. It's about relationship. And then he goes and tells everybody about the good news. Now, one more thing. Look at verse 7 and 8 one more time. This is actually a prophecy speaking of Jesus Christ. 
So David was writing this about himself. The Holy Spirit is penning this about Jesus Christ. And now look at the Lord's mindset and his heart and his strength when it comes to his father. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Now, when you see Jesus in his ministry, is he a lover of God the Father? And how did he prove his love? The cross, but even before that was obedience. Ultimately, obedience all the way through. He didn't come to do his own will. He didn't come to speak his own mind. He did it to glorify his Father. He loved the Father that led through obedience and ultimate good works. So number one, the man of God is to be called a lover spiritually. Now here's number two. He's to be called a lover sacrificially. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, verse 25. He's called a leader, he's called a lover, and he's called to love sacrificially, particularly his wife. Ephesians 5, verse 25 through 27. Here's the command. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that... He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. What's the command of the husband to the wife? To love sacrificially. When you think of the cross, It's love. You know, it wasn't nails that held Christ there. It was his love for you that held Jesus on that cross. It was his love. Galatians 2.20, I'll read it to you. Galatians 2.20, for I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live in the flesh for the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. His motivation was love. How did that materialize? Him sacrificing himself. Now, when we think of Christ and his, and his sacrifice, you immediately think of what, uh, what John said, the cross. We immediately go to the cross and say, that was his sacrifice. And it was, that was the culmination of it. But the Lord's sacrifice started in his incarnation. You think of it like this. Jesus was in heaven before he came to earth, right? He wasn't a created being. He was the creator. So in heaven, what do you think Jesus, what was happening with Jesus in heaven before he came to earth? So he had angels and a throne and and angels going around. And what are they screaming and yelling and singing and worshiping? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, right? So you have Christ and he's glorified. For all eternity, he's been glorified. Ever since the the creation of angels, he's been glorified. And then he leaves heaven. He becomes a man. And what happens here on earth? Well, he was a little baby and they go from in to in. And what happens? He ends up having to go where? In the barn. And the same story over and over through his entire life. I'll read to you Philippians 2. Philippians 2 verse 5 and 8. 
Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even a cross. So one, the Lord loved us sacrificially when he came down from heaven. Two, his ministry, he was obedient to the point of death. In his ministry, the Lord sacrificially loved you. Why? Why is it important that Jesus had to be perfect? Exactly. If Jesus wasn't the perfect lamb of God, we wouldn't be forgiven our sin. So Jesus in his ministry had to be absolutely perfect in every point of the law. Folks, that's loving sacrifice. Try to go one day not sinning against God and see how hard it is. That's loving sacrifice. And then ultimately the cross. He died to show his love for you and I on the cross. So we are called as men to love and love sacrificially, particularly when it comes to our wives. So how does that look like on a daily basis? It goes back to being strong and back to being mature. For one example, let's say, this is an example that most people live with. The hubby wakes up early in the morning. He hops in the shower. He brushes his teeth. He gets some coffee. And then what does he do? He gets in his car and he's commuting. And he's there on the 10 West for 60 minutes staring at brake lights. And there he's thinking in his mind, everything that has to get done at the job site. Uh, he's already taking phone calls. He's already hitting up emails through his phone. He's already working on the freeway. He gets to work and c'est la vie as his life. There's full of problems. Two people called off their short staff. A foreman broke his leg. The city's coming with permitting issues. All kinds of problems. He's putting out problems the whole day he's working. It's time to finally go home. He says, he hops in the car, and then what does he face? 90 minutes on the 10 East. Traffic. And there he's staring at the brakes, and he's trying to decompress from his day. You know, how did I handle that situation? Or is this permit going to go through? He's still working, even though he's technically clocked off and he's driving at a, a deathly slow pace. He's in purgatory there on the 10 East as he's slowly driving home. And his thought is, I just want to get home and I can take a shower and hopefully I can have a, a warm meal that doesn't come from Aunt Jemima, Uncle Ben, or Chef Boyardee, you know, hopefully there's a, a warm meal for me. I could shower, get in my, my chonchons and just relax. I just want to relax. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, what you don't know is happening on the other side of the door is your daughter just got suspended from school. Your son threw a rock through the window. Your other son's been so disrespectful to your, to your wife and your wife has a side hustle and she's running the house and she's about to scream and she sees you coming to the door and you're her savior, right? She's like, finally, I get a break. I can finally relax. Now you have a conundrum. Right? There's basically two options the man or the leader can do. Option number one, he can pull rank. And he can say, I'm a leader. You didn't call me at my job. You weren't there dealing with the city. You weren't dealing with my problems. I'm not going to sit here and deal with yours. That's not the way to go, but that is a way to go. Right? He can pull rank and say, you deal with it just like I dealt with my problems. 
Or number two, see, the first one is being strong, but is it the second aspect of being a man, mature? No. Option number two is you can help. You can step up. You can now exercise sacrificial love by applying a new law in your own life that when I leave work, I'm not going to relax. I leave work to go to work. It's just a different form. Like for me, in the mornings and into the afternoon, it's stock market. The NASDAQ, the S&P 500, uh, the, the, the T-bills, everything, it's, I'm focused on finance. The bell rings, I take off that hat and I put on daddy dirty diaper hat, right? And now I'm warming up breast milk and I'm changing diapers and, and this is just what it is. And I'm waiting for my wife to come home so I can chuck them off to her. But the idea is love and sacrifice. The, the man of God in everyday life and every example is going to be brought up with situations where he has to fall back on his character and say, am I going to be strong and mature and help out? Or am I going to be machismo and kick off my shoes and, you know, be the king of my own castle? Now, that's just one example. Another a sacrificial example that just came to my head is when the treacherous question of how was your day comes up, comes up, Right. And men, I'll speak for, on behalf of all men, we can answer in one word, good, fine. My day was fine, that's it. But it's a trick. Because what is she expecting you to ask in return? And I can guarantee you it's not going to be a one-word answer. And so you're there 30 minutes later, you know, sacrificing your energy and your time to listen. Am I the only one here? Okay, I'm diming myself out, Okay. But it's sacrificial love to be listening actively and to put yourself in situations where you might not necessarily care, right? You might not necessarily, hi, babe. You might not necessarily care about her day, but you sacrificially listen in. That's the idea of dying to self. You sacrifice as a lover, you sac- uh, as a lover to your wife, you are also called to lead, and you are also called to love the Lord. Now, here's the next aspect of love. You are called to love physically. So you are called to love spiritually. You are called to love, um, what was the last one I just said? Sacrificially, and then this one is sexually. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3 through 5. And this is a call for both husband and wife, but seeing that we're dealing with the men, this is a call to the man. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3 through 5. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, and likewise also the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. Verse 5, here's the command. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of control. Now, men, you are called to be sexually lovers of your wife. And notice it's not a delicacy, it's a duty. If you notice in verse 2, it calls on the man and the woman as a duty to be bound to please their spouse sexually. 
It's a duty. The, the word is an obligation that can't be missed. So if you've been summoned to court, it's kind of like that. You have an obligation and you cannot miss because of its importance. When it comes to uh, husband and wife in sexual intimacy in the bedroom, they are called to not miss or to always be doing their duty of sexually pleasing one another. Now, why? In verse 5, it tells you, so that what? Why is it that the Bible commands the man of God to love his wife sexually? You won't be tempted by whom? Satan, because of your lack of self-control. So the Bible says, husband, wife, get it on. And outside of spiritual times where you both have agreed that, hey, we're going to abstain from sex so we can fast or we can serve the Lord or whatever the case may be, outside of those times, be joined together so that Satan doesn't bring someone along and remove you. And it's so easy for somebody to slide in your DMs. It's so easy to meet somebody who has the gift of gab. It's just so easy to fall. You meet them on the subway station. You meet them, you know, in your here's and there's and wherever you go. And it's so easy to fall and to just be torn apart. And Satan wants that because the marriage union is an illustration between the relationship between God and man. And God hates divorce, and Satan loves doing things that God hates. He wants to see you destroyed, your reputation run into the ground. He wants you to fall. He wants you to be an adulterer, because when you are, you'll always have that stigma. You'll be the adulterer. You might be a forgiven one, but you'll still be that person. And that affects testimony. So the Bible calls us to have sex with our spouse because of Satan. Now here's another one. It's a symbol of God's union. It's a symbol of God's union. Remember last week we looked at Genesis 2 and we left in verse 24 and we left with, for this reason, man shall leave husband or father and mother and cling or be joined to his wife. And then verse 25, what does it say? That is so important. They were naked and not ashamed. That's the picture of the consummation of the marriage. See, when you're with your spouse and you have that rapport, you can see them fully naked and there's no shame. How self-conscious are you, though, to strip down in front of everybody else? There's some shame there. And the idea is husband and wife have this unique duty, this beautiful privilege and obligation to come together sexually in marriage in consummation. They used to have this thing in many cultures called the bedding ceremony. Some uh, uh, Two people would get together, a man and a woman. In the Viking uh, culture, they did this. Middle East, they did this. Other parts of the world. And they would have a ceremony, a big party. And during that party, the husband and the, the wife, they would go up to a room. They would close the door or the, the sheets or the tents. And then the the leaders of the family or the patriarchs of the family, the intimate family members would be on the other side of the door. And they would just listen in. And when the acknowledgement that the two have come together in consummation happens, when it's confirmed, the marriage is then sealed. It is then validated. And then the couple comes out and the entire festival ramps up. The idea is, is we've gone through the ceremonies, we've gone through all the, the public, uh, you know, uh, events, and now it's time to consummate or fulfill our marriage through sex. And the idea is two flesh, seeing each other, not being ashamed, coming together as one. 
and ultimately fulfilling God's command of what? Being fruitful and what? And filling the earth and subduing everything in your way. Sex, every time a man and a woman comes together, it's an illustration of God's divine and beautiful union. It's declaring that God knows what he is doing. It is a symbol of God's marriage uh, ceremony. So we looked at the lover. We looked at he is called, uh, he is called to be a spiritual lover, to be a sexual lover, and he's called to be a sacrificial lover. Uh, quickly, let's look at number two. He's also called to be loyal. So we've looked at leadership. We've looked at him being a lover. Now let's look at his call to loyalty. The man of God is called to be loyal. So we started off with Joshua. You remember Joshua? God called him. God was with him. It was very, very difficult. Joshua lost a lot of good men. Joshua, I'm sure, had was in a lot of uh, real sticky situations as he fought and fought and fought and went to war for God. Now we come to the end of Joshua's life. Look at Joshua 24, verse 14 and 15. Joshua chapter 24, verse 14 and 15. And just like Moses had uh, gave final words to the people before he died. Here too, Joshua, before his death, gives these final words. And he speaks to all of Israel, and he says this, Now therefore, fear the Lord. That's the idea of loving him. That's the internal affections. And serve him in sincerity and truth. And that's the external, the the how a person loves the Lord through service and sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods of the fathers served which were beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me, And my house, we will serve the Lord. Here's Joshua, and he's explaining, displaying this incredible example of loyalty when it comes to his walk. And that's a very key aspect of the man of God. He must be loyal, number one, in his walk with the Lord, in his calling. We're going to see in his ministry. God has called every man to leadership and God has called every Christian to salvation and God has implanted every Christian with his spirit. God has given every Christian gifts of the Holy Spirit. God has given every Christian, including men, every opportunity to glorify him. Now we just need to choose this day whom we will serve. And so men, where is your loyalty? Don't answer it. That's between you and God. Where is your loyalty? And if you want to know, check your bank statements. Look where your money's going. Check where your time is going. Check where your desires and your affections lie. And then see if they align with God's walk or they don't. And that's a very good indication if you are walking faithfully and loyally to the Lord or you're not. So where do my allegiances lie? When I find that out, I'll know if I'm being loyal. So God has called the man of God to choose this day whom he will serve. Number two, check it. 
First Corinthians chapter four, verses one through two. The man of God is to be loyal to his Lord and to his walk, and he's called to be loyal to his ministry and what the call of God has for his life. First Corinthians chapter four, verse one and two. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards. Now here's the job description or requirement of being a good steward of God. And what is it, if anybody's there in verse two? To be trustworthy. To be found trustworthy. What's the requirement of being a steward, which is to being a laborer of God? When you labor for God, what's the requirement? That you be found loyal, faithful. Whatever God has called you to, and all of our callings are different, and all of our callings, you know, aren't going to look and parallel one another's. Whatever God's calling is for you, walk in it, fulfill it, be about it, be like Jesus, all about my Father's business. The requirement for stewardship is faithfulness. Just do what God has called you to do. The man of God, his yes is yes, his no is no. When the man of God comes, commits to uh, an appointment or he commits to a task, he follows through. It's the idea of just being faithful and trustworthy. Now, here's number three. The man of God is called to be faithful in his walk, in his work for the Lord, and number three, in his work, period. Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than man. So here it comes now to the actual workplace. We're going to see that the man of God is called the provider. So the man of God is called to be in the workplace. In the workplace, the command is work mightily. In other words, work your tails off. Be an example to everyone else. Pastor Dennis, who was the former pastor of this church, he told the story of his daughter, Jody and how she was a waitress. And how she would, because of her integrity, she would count and she would um, record every penny of her tips. Every tip she got, she recorded it. Now, that's not normal in that industry. Most people don't record their tips, so they don't get taxed. She knew she was going to get taxed. Her integrity, she recorded it anyway. All of the waiters and waitresses and her staff, her management, upper management, they did not like her for it. Why? Because it showed that every one of them was not being, having integrity, and every one of them was essentially stealing. And so she was the odd man out, if you will. She was the one, the sore thumb or the black sheep of the whole thing. Because she honored God, because she worked hard, and because she did things with integrity. She was soloed out, but she was also an example to everyone else of what it means to do well, to be loyal in the place God has called you to be. So on your, in your workplace, don't steal time, right? And we all know how to do it. You know, we go to the, the bathroom and there we are for an hour surfing the, surfing our phones, right? And the only reason we get up is because our legs go dead, right? We know how to get around. We know how to lie to the boss. We know how to, to, uh, extend our breaks for 15 to 30. We know how to not get, go into work, you know, and, and kind of skate by and do the very bare minimum. God's call. When you're at your job, work hard. 
Work mightily as unto the Lord. It's an example and a testimony. Here's number four. Uh, the man of God is to be loyal in his walk. He's to be loyal in his work for the Lord, loyal in his work. Here's number four. He's to be loyal to his wife. He is to be loyal to his wife. Proverbs chapter five, verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for your strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed. And notice the cistern and the water and the fountain are actually illustrations of your wife. And what he's saying is in verse 17 or verse 18, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? So here we have the, the author of Hebrews. He's writing his son as a wise father, and he's instructing him, stay away from bad women. Stay away from the adulteress. She's going to bring you down to the grave. She's going to take you into hell. She's going to destroy all of your life. Proverbs 7 is a whole chapter just on that. And he's saying, stay away. Now, how could the married man stay away from those threats of an adulterous relationship? What does the psalmist or what does the writer of Proverbs say in verse 15 and following? Join to your wife, drink from your wife, enjoy your wife's body, be thankful for your wife. In other words, don't go looking elsewhere. And here's a truth, maybe you'll hate me for it or not, but I believe this to be true. Women mature faster than men, and they also age faster than men. Now you can fight me on that, I don't care, I, I believe that to be true. They live longer, yet their reproductive cycle is only about 40% of their life, where men can reproduce about 80% of their life. We live shorter, yet we can produce much longer. Our bodies stay stronger longer. Our den bone density stays stronger longer. Men tend to age better than women. And because of that, what do you think men start to do as they get older and their pretty young wife is not so pretty anymore and she's not so young anymore? Typically, what happens is men start to explore the car lot and they say, hmm, maybe I can trade this one in for a new model. And this is what happens. And men try to date 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, you know, under their age, and they're living their best life. Meanwhile, the wife of their youth is tossed off to the side. And the call is, be always satisfied with your wife. Join to her. Drink from her own body. Eat of her. And just be infatuated with her so the adulterous woman doesn't come. Now we know where the adulterous woman comes from. Who's behind her? Satan, tempting you, pushing you. And so the call is be faithful to your wife. Don't try to satisfy yourself elsewhere. You are going to fall. Jesus even says if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery on her. This is how serious God wants you to be like Job and say, I have made a covenant with my eyes that I will not look at a young woman with lust. This is the idea of I have to bring every single thought unto subjection of Christ. 
And Paul says it's better for us to get married because we aren't self-controlled. So if you're married and you're still not self-controlled, make sure you're finding your wife very often, or you will find yourself in a divorce and in a nasty situation. So the the man is called to uh, lead well, be loyal to his walk, loyal to his work for the Lord, loyal to his work, loyal to his wife. And the last one, he is to be loyal to his friends. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24. A man of God, or what it means to act like a man is to be loyal to your friends. 18, verse 24, Proverbs. A man of too many friends comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Now here is the idea of loyalty, that there are people in your life who can become more of a brother and become closer to you and you're more intimately joined to them than your actual biological family. And the reason for that is because they've proven themselves loyal to you. Notice the idea of sticking. The idea is sticking around or or the loyal friend sticks alongside the person. They come alongside. They don't leave when times get tough. The Bible, Bible always says that this friend is one who loves his friends at all times. Proverbs 17, 17. Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. You may scrap with your brother. You don't get to choose your biological brother, but you do get to choose your friends. And there are times and there are those people in your lives where good friends, loyal friends, love you at all times. They love you in the good times. They love you in the mediocre times. And they love you even in the ugly times. They love you even if your own brother has ad, uh, adversity with you. But with that, now turn to 27, verse 5 and 6. Proverbs 27, 5 and 6. A loyal friend also keeps it real. They don't just love you and let you be in sin. They love you and they'll keep it real. Proverbs 27, verse 5 and 6. Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. So a good friend He will wound you. She will wound you for the purpose of making you better. The idea is making you better and not bitter. A good friend comes alongside and wants to see you better yourself and build them up and help you to to become a better version of you. A bad friend gives you lip service, but they never correct you. Oh, it's okay if you cheat on your wife. Oh, it's okay if you cheat on your tags. Oh, don't worry. Everybody does it. That's a bad friend. A good friend loves you, but he'll, he or she will keep it real. They'll tell you when you're stumbling. They'll tell you when you're off. They'll let you know when things need to change. Here's the last one. We'll close. He'll keep you in check. Yeah. Ecclesiastes chapter four, verse nine through 12. This is the last aspect of a loyal friend. A loyal friend is there no matter what. Ecclesiastes four, nine through 12. This is usually used to speak about marriages, it has nothing to do with marriage. It has everything to do with friendship. Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes 4 and 9. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. 
For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. The principle here, there's power in numbers. When you have a good friend, when you have two good friends that you can do life with, there's power and there's strength. The idea is all of us are going to break at some point. All of us are going to get knocked off course at some point. All of us are going to fall at some point. And if there's no one there to pick us up, we're in trouble. But if you have a loyal friend who's acting like a man, who's coming alongside, who's devoted to loving them and to calling them out for their sin and being there for them at all times, that is a loyal friend. So the Bible says the man of God is to act like a leader, He's at to act like a lover, and he's called to loyalty. Next week, we'll start uh, tearing up what it means to act like a man. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. Father, we thank you. God, we um, are just grateful that we are exposed to the truth. It's incredible that 52 countries in this world have made the Bible illegal. And here we have it in book form. We have it online. We have it on our Kindle. We can read it in a million different translations. We have opportunities to outlines. We have opportunities to commentaries. And God, we are so rich when it comes to the Word of God. But I pray, Lord, that we would be devoted to it and we would be devoted to you. I pray, God, for the men in this church, that they would be men who love you with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their mind. I pray, God, that they would love their wives as they love themselves. I pray, God, that they would love their wives physically and that they would appease her body as she appeases his. And, God, we know that you've called everyone to loyalty, to be a good friend, to love at all times, to call them out for their sin, and to be there when they are broken and they need a helping hand. Lord God, we love you, and God, we thank you. And as men, as a man, the demands and commands are so intense, and they are so all-encompassing, and we realize how short each one of us falls. So Lord, we need you. We need your spirit. This is the only way we can lead we can love, and we can be loyal. Thank you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.
May God keep you. May God bless you. May his face shine upon you and give you peace. If you have questions about today's sermon or any sermon, uh, concerns, if you have problems you're struggling with, uh, we always invite you to come up, talk to me, Brian, Mike. Not many people do take us up on our offer, but sometimes you do. Um, so if you find yourself, you know, like that, that strand of one, that cord of one that's been broken and you need someone to come alongside, that's what this church is for. Amen. So may God be with you and keep you and remember that you are a minister of God. I'm a minister of God and so are you in the same capacity. Only I'm called to equip you and you're called to equip others. That's the only difference. You're called to walk as I walk and I'm called to walk like God. So there's no difference between you and I. So handle your ministry, fulfill your walk, live your calling, love your wives, love people, and above all, love God. Amen? Amen. May God be with you and keep you. And that is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church Fontana, where you can find all that information and more. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you here next time.